We're, we're in Psalm one, at Psalm 127. Um, this will be our last Sunday in the Psalms, uh, I believe, at least that, that's my plan. And then um, the next week we start a whole new series. You can see a little bit about that in your, in your handout, your, your bulletins. Uh, we're going to uh, look at some passages all over the New Testament um, and learn what it means to be the church. Um, we are family, that is what the church is. We are family, and we'll be looking at that next week. But um, today, I want us to look at a really, um, a really significant psalm, a significant psalm for me, um, one that I've turned to over the years to, to find a really good reminder of where our hope is found. Um, psalm 127 is a song of a sense, it says, a, a collection of psalms, um, here in this part of the Bible that were used um, as the pilgrims, as the travelers were coming to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. And so it's a, I think it's a really important psalm. All of these are so wonderful and I invite you to read them. And if, if you read the Bible with us and follow the plan, follow the bookmarks, through with us, you'll, you'll read through all of the Psalms as well as all of the New Testament as well as half of the Old Testament this year and you'll get to these Psalms again and I hope you'll find as much joy in them as I have. But let's look at Psalm 127 together. Um, I'm going to read it uh, aloud and so follow with me either in your Bibles or on the screen. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep, or excuse me, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will you'll teach us um, as we look at this psalm this morning, as we look at this passage from your word, and God, help us to see what it is that you want us to see from it. Um, once again, I ask for humility for myself and for the listeners, uh, insight um, and understanding. And, and God, more than anything, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move and work in our hearts, dry, drawing us to yourself, um, compelling us to, to seek you and to put our faith and trust in you, and then to walk away from here um, working and living according to your word to us. Well, I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Pilgrim family traveled many days on foot. Weary from the road, they longed to finish their journey in the great city. Suddenly coming around a turn in the road, they saw it, the city on top of the hill. And within it, they could see the house of God rising above the city walls. The house was there. The city was there. 
their family had come. They had arrived at their destination. Here was everything that they had hoped for. Here was success, and here was security, and here was a status that would last. Unfortunately, for the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem during that time, that success and that security and that status of that place did not last. Years, years went by and the nation that belonged to God eventually rebelled against Him and rebelled against His ways. They, had, they began to seek success and security in something other than their God. They had redefined their status. Yet, ironically, as this pilgrim family uh, went up the steps to the house of God, they sang this song, which was, probably, which was much truer than they probably believed. Because Psalm 127 addresses these desires that are embedded in every, every human heart. The desire for success, the desire for security, a desire for status. The answer to each of these desires from this psalm is that we can do nothing without God. But with God, we have everything that we need. The desire for success is right there in the very first verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This house... In our English translations, it translates a Hebrew word that had a, a wide range of, of meaning. It could mean a number of things. It could mean the physical building where the family dwelled, where the family lived. It, it could also, and it often did, refer to this temple in Jerusalem, the house of God, the place where God and His presence dwelt with the people. And, and I imagine they probably thought of that as they sang this song, looking at the building up there ahead of them. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The house, the word house could also refer to a family or a dynasty. The house of David was, was the, the dynasty of David. David and his son Solomon and then his sons after them and, and on and on. Um, the great dynasty of Israel's greatest king. So it's not hard to, to see how that kind of all works into this psalm. But in this context, I, I'm sure that they were thinking of that that house, that symbol of, of Israel's success among the nations. They had a temple for their God. And so all of the nations could see that's, 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 uh, that's where they belong. That's, that's their city, that's their people, that's their, the symbol that God has given them success because there's a house for their God, a place where they worship and I'm sure that they thought, in a, in, in, a, in a sense too, that they could say, look, see this great temple? See the success that we have been, been, been granted by God? See this great building? In the New Testament, it's the church that is talked about as God's house. A lot of images for the church in the New Testament, but one that Paul refre reflects on in 1 Corinthians 3 is when he says, you are God's building, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. Paul meant that, the, that, that Christians make up the church, that individual 
Christians make up the church into a spiritual building. Like the temple, but even so, we, we often think that, yes, okay, we're, we're the spiritual building, we're, we're a spiritual building, but we have to, don't we have to achieve a certain uh, level of success as a church? Uh, don't we need to do something great? Um, like maybe building a new building or, <laughs> or just having a building in general that we could call our own? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that mark a certain point at which our church was being successful? Or maybe if a certain number of members were present here? Or maybe if we just had the right kind of music, maybe if we just had a piano player, everything would be okay. Or maybe if we had a certain level in our budget so that we could do certain programs or certain ministries. Wouldn't that show that we are being successful as a church? Yet, Paul made it very clear, if you look at that passage in 1 Corinthians, that it's God who was the one building the building. He was the one building His church. He was the one making it grow. And His plan would be accomplished through the faithfulness of His people and is through His empowerment. Otherwise, it's all in vain unless the Lord builds the house. Those who build it labor in vain. Um, in our city... It's no surprise, lots of buildings been going on, right? Some of us are living in homes that have been built in the last 10 or so years. But even now, you just, just head to the west end of town and go across Fache and drive a few blocks, and there are all these new buildings being built. And I started imagining, what if it was like this? What if they were building houses in vain? What if... The construction crews all showed up to do their job, the, the roofers to do the roofing, the electricians to do the electricians, the framers to do the framing. The, I, I don't, I'm not in construction, but you get the idea. They all, they all got their job to do, right? They all showed up, they all got busy on their jobs, but none of them bothered concerning themselves with the plans for the house. None of them bothered concerning themselves with the blueprints. How is this supposed to all, to go, all go together? The builders would be building in vain because nothing would go together. And I imagine that the work on the house wouldn't last very long. At some point, they would just say, we're not reading off the same page here. It's the same with our lives, both individually and as a church. God has given us a plan for our lives that's that's God's Word. That's in the Bible. He's given us a, a design for our relationships. He's given us a design for our marriages, families, work, or money. question is, will we seek His plan as we build on our lives? Will we seek His plan as we build in our church? God has given the church a very distinct plan, has He not? Matthew 28 Verses 18, 19, 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God has given every follower of Jesus the mission of making disciples. 
He wants us to be a church of disciples making disciples. But unless the Lord is doing the work in us and through us, it's all in vain. He's the great builder. He's the one that when he builds it, 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 it will last. We can build all kinds of things. We can do all kinds of, make all kinds of successful moves in our lives, personally or in business or in careers, or even in the church, and go, look what we've built. Look, look where we're at. Look how many people are here Sunday by Sunday. But if God's not doing work in people's hearts, if He is not achieving something, if He's not transforming lives, if disciples are not being made and we're just gathering a crowd, have we been building in vain? We can achieve nothing on our own. Look what He says in verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. The psalmist is not saying work is bad. The psalmist is not saying don't go out there and work hard day in and day out. But he's saying if you are working at what God has called you to work at, then you can work with all your heart as unto the Lord, giving Him glory. And then at night, rest. Rest in Him. <laughs> rest in Him. See, because with God, our success at doing what He has called us to do is guaranteed. Because it's not based on our own building, but on the perfect, sinless work of Jesus. The life that Jesus built on our behalf. Perfectly living out God's design for humanity. He always obeyed. He always did what was right. He always did what was perfect. And He accomplished the mission God gave Him. That's success. That is success. But achieving some matter of success begs the question, will it be secure? Will what we achieve be safe? That's the desire for security. And, and the psalmist addresses that in the very next phrase. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. A city meant safety. A city meant Protection. Uh, the walls of the city were built high so that the enemy, if there was an enemy nation coming against it, the people inside could feel secure, could feel like, hey, nothing's going to harm us because we have our city, we have our walls. And so they would place, they would even place a watchman on the walls. And he would be, he would be looking outside of the city while everyone was fast asleep. The watchman would stay awake. Um, he'd, he'd probably chug a few Red Bulls or something like that, and he would be there out on the wall just in case an enemy came near. And woe to the watchman who fell asleep on the job. It's hard to really have an appreciation of what I think a city and its walls meant for a population today because our, our cities aren't built that way. It would probably be similar, I guess, to to the way um, security systems protect our homes or protect our buildings. Could you imagine um, getting... A, we don't have a security system, so if you want to break into our house, you just come on over. You know, We'll just uh, trust that the Lord was watching over our home. Um, but imagine setting up that security system in your home. 
And you get all the cameras in place, like little, little cameras here and there. You get all the door and window sensors in place, right? Um, you get some motion detectors in place. Everything's set. Everything is set up. But then none of them get connected. <laughs> none of them get connected to a network that's going to monitor things. None of them get connected to the power, a power source. So what good are all of those things in place? What, what good is that system in place in your home or in your building or your business? It's the same, it's, it's the, almost the same concept that the psalmist is talking about. Look, unless God is actually at work and empowering that city, it's all in vain. You can watch all you want. But God is the one that really makes it secure. No wall is going to keep out an enemy unless God wants to keep him out. We probably have a, a hard time imagining this idea of divine importance because, uh, you know, in the Old, the Old Testament times, things were so much different. Uh, uh, Old Testament commentator Leslie Allen, he wrote this, living as we may in a more secure and just society, in which we enjoy peace, freedom, and lawful order guaranteed by a fair pol police force and judiciary, where urban alert systems and friends at court helping you out, uh, advocating for you, are unnecessary, the psalm's immediate impact on us will be lost. Now, don't start debating about our freedom and security here in our country. That's not the point. The point is to, to, to show the contrast between how we live today, and how they lived then. Or maybe we don't have to, to imagine living then when we listen to the testimonies of our brothers and sisters in Christ who lived through communism in Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I read this story this week. Richard Wormbrand tells his story and shares many um, stories of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in his book, which is a testimony called Tortured for Christ. Listen to what he had to say about uh, a fellow sister in Christ. One of our workers in the underground church, he said, was a young girl. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her. But to make the arrest as agonizing and as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly, the door burst open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed. They roughly put the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved, then kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. We may live in a world of security. We think that things are secure. But in reality, they can change in an instant. Perhaps that's what Paul understood when he wrote his final letter to Timothy and he said in 2 Timothy 
4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He knew that true security is found in Jesus. Jesus who promised, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So as we consider God's call in our lives, as we consider the task that's before us, as we consider uh, achieving success in God's kingdom, will it cause us to be a little uncomfortable? Will we have to take some risks? Will we have to give something up? Will it actually be all that safe? Undoubtedly, the answer is no. It will not be safe. It will not be easy. But we have the promise of Jesus that no, no evil experience, not even death, can defeat His purposes and ultimately cannot defeat us as well. We are eternally secure with our heavenly bridegroom. With God, our security is guaranteed. Why? Because our heavenly bridegroom paid the price for our sin on the cross. Why? Because Jesus' death defeated sin and death for us. So really, what do we have to fear? What do we have to be worried about? Our success and security is guaranteed by Jesus. Well, we still have the question of status, though. Because oftentimes when achieving success or, uh, or, or achieving security, having security in place, we want to know that what we're doing is going to last. Is it going to pass into the next generation? Is our status going to be sure? That's what the psalmist addresses next. In verses 3, 4, and 5, he says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. The heritage or a reward. It, see, it may seem like having children or sons, as the, the, the Hebrew um, puts the emphasis on the male children in these words, but it, having children, it may seem like it's a result of a parent's choice or maybe skills. Um, a, a scientific discovery and figuring out how all these things work and maybe like doing, oh, well, you can't have children. Well, we'll have, we have some ways of helping you out. We can do medicines and we can do this and that. But the psalmist says that they're a result of God's grace, that they're a blessing from Him. Having children, and especially having sons in the ancient Near East, was very important. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The picture here is of a, of a man having male children, having sons, most desirable. Like, okay, it's okay to have some girls. We need some girls around, but I need a son. I must have a son. Why? He's going to pass on my name. He's going to inherit all that I have. If I die without a son, my girls aren't getting anything. I'm, that, was what, that was the Hebrew mindset. <laughs> you girls might not get anything either because there might not be anything to give you except for some old beat up Bibles in a library of books. Um, so, but in, in, in ancient Israel, 
uh, they looked, the, the man said, I need to have a son because I need to be able to pass on my inheritance to my sons. And, and my sons will, if I have them when I'm young and I have children young and said, I, I don't want to wait till I'm 40 or 50. You might be dead by that time in ancient Israel. But if you wait too long, you have sons. Guess what? You get old. You get decrepit, but your sons are still anchor biters, ankle biters, and they're not going to be able to help you out. So have sons when you're young, so that when you get to old age, they are grown, and they can help you, and they can protect you. In fact, they will be like defenders of injustice. When you're getting old and senile, and, and people are starting to take advantage of you, your sons will stand in the city gate where they do business, and they will say, no, that's not right. Don't take advantage of my father. We stand for him and we stand for our family. Our status is secure because the, is, the ancient Israelites had sons. Not much has changed with humanity's obsession with status. <laughs> right? Our culture seems to be I think our culture, though, now seems to magnify this obsession more and more. We update our status, right, on social media. We even, we even talk about it like that. We, we, live, in, we live in a culture where status uh, gives us a defining sense of who we are and self and purpose and identity and meaning. And we can, we can reinvent ourselves in whatever way we want so that the world sees, oh, well, that's who that person is. We change our status and any time our, the, or at any time to fulfill the whims of our sovereign self. Well, even setting um, social media aside, okay, just leave that to aside. It is status that determines um, or, or that is determined by what we say or what we believe, uh, who we are, or how we act. This kind of self-determination in the human heart is what drove a man like Bruce Jenner to transition. That's the culture that we live in. We live in a culture where anything goes. If I want to be like this, I'm going to be like this. And nobody's going to stop me because I am totally sovereign. On the other hand... <laughs> Look again at Psalm 127. Where does the status come from? It's not the man who decides I'm going to have sons. I didn't decide, hey, I'm going to have sons. God gave me four beautiful daughters. That's what he filled my quiver with. And they are warriors. Let me tell you, they are warriors in their own way. But we don't make that choice. They're a heritage from God. They're a reward from God. They are a blessing from God. It is God's sovereign blessing that, that gives us dignity, that gives us value, that ensures a legacy. We can be nothing without God. What would it look like if we looked not within our own selves, our own hearts, our own minds, to decide who we are, to decide what kind of status we would have. But if we look to God and His Word for the ultimate answers about who we are and what we are to become, what would happen if when we're discouraged, when we're disappointed, when we're frustrated, when we're exhausted, thinking, I'm not who I 
thought I should be. That we looked to Jesus and saw there our true identity. What if we considered this status update from Peter, <laughs> one of Jesus' apostles who said, but you are, listen to this, this is an identity. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy from God through Christ through Jesus in his life and death and his resurrection, his new life, which gives us life, that guarantees our status with God. It's based on Jesus' finished work. It's a status in Christ that is higher than anything we could ever achieve or ever make for ourselves out of our own minds. And it's guaranteed to last forever. In a book that I love, that um, my girls and I started reading a few months ago and got a little busy and got distracted and we haven't finished yet, but this book called A Horse and His Boy tells the story of Shasta, who's a poor fisherman's boy who goes on a great adventure. At one point in the story, he discovers his life did not mean what he thought it meant. Instead of living in vain, this vain existence living by the sea with smelly fish and a father who didn't really love him, instead of that, he found that his life had a purpose and a meaning. Instead of being a nothing, he was a something. And I wanted to read you a short section of this book because I think it's so powerful Here's how he discovered it. On his journeys with, with um, friends and um, then suddenly being separated from them and getting, getting caught up in the, the, the eve of a, a great battle, of a war that was beginning, he found himself lost in the dark on a, in the middle of the night um, riding a dumb beast of a horse not a talking, not a talking horse, if, so, so you know what I'm saying. And feeling very, very lost, very, very alone. And this is what the story says. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing, and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any f footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that 
He had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. There suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop, so he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not, not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. That was his friend. And also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta ga gaped, with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook, and again, myself, loud and clear and gay, and then the third time, myself, whispered so softly, 
You could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. Shasta met Aslan, the lion. Shasta met who we would call, who we would call in our world Jesus. He met the one the one who was orchestrating everything, the one who had a plan for every event in his life, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, he was behind it. He was working. He was building. He was watching. He was giving identity. And what Shasta didn't know was that he didn't belong to a poor fisherman and his identity was, which was far greater Instead of a poor fisherman's son, he discovered himself to be the son of the king, a prince, a a destination, a a status higher than he could possibly have ever imagined. And, and And that's where we are, folks. That's that's where we are at. What about us? What how will we define our success? How will we define our security? How will we, uh, how will we define our sense of self and our status except in our King who loved us, who loved us so much that He died for us? Will we stand proudly and arrogantly and say, I am something and fail to see, fail to recognize that God was behind everything that you and I have ever achieved? Or equally tragic, will we stand and say, I am nothing, but we will fail to recognize that it is Christ in us, and it is Christ himself, that through him, we are more than our circumstances, more than our failings, more than our disappointments and difficulties. We are his. He is available to us. And, and whether you've come to know Him by faith up to this point in your life or not, every day is an opportunity for you to fall before Him and say, Jesus, You're everything. We are nothing without Him. But with Him, we have everything we need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. God, I thank you for your love for us. Father, we, we have these desires. Um, they're, they're natural. We, uh, we, we, we cannot force them down. We, uh, we cannot ignore the desire to achieve something, to achieve a measure of success. And, and we certainly want to feel secure and, and safe and protected. And that's not wrong. In fact, we, we do want a defining sense of self. Lord, uh, a problem though is that we live in this fallen world where sin has marred every aspect of our existence and, and our desires are marred as well. Because we, we, we seek to, to fulfill them in something other than you.
when you are what you created us to be desiring and to be fulfilled in. Father, I pray that you will, by your grace, allow us to fall before you, to seek you, to be our vision, to be our comforter and encourager when we need it, to be our, um, our, our, our standard of success. And Lord, keep us safe and keep us secure by your grace that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. As we respond to you, I ask that you will work in your name to do it. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.